0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely pleased uh, today to introduce to you Andres Borg. Um, I have, in fact, two reasons why I'm so happy. One is, of course, that uh, we have a personality from Sweden, a country that in the post-war period has been a forerunner in so many different areas of economic and financial developments. Um, it is a country that has shown the rest of the world, if I may say so, how to construct a social welfare state and now since about a decade, how to deconstruct it, but in such a way as to make it stronger and more sustainable in the long run. There is another reason uh, why Sweden uh, has been a forerunner. It had a financial crisis almost uh, two decades ago, and. and showed to many of us, uh, first of all, how you should avoid this, and then, more importantly now, how you should deal with financial crisis effectively and successfully, and, and, and especially in the Eurozone, some countries are still trying to understand that. Right? So that makes me very happy to have somebody from Sweden, but uh, my second reason why I'm happy, and uh, probably even more so, is that uh, here we have a personality, who is a minister of finance, and when you look at him, would you think he's a minister of finance? <laughs> in fact, he's now one of the ministers of finance with the longest period uh, in in uh, power in, in in the European Union. Right, so he's one of the oldest. Um, the Financial Times, as you certainly know, has uh, given him the title to be the best minister of finance uh, in the European Union. Um, So here he is, um, the Swedish minister of finance. And I guess one of the reasons of his success is his capacity to think out of the box. And uh, that can be dangerous, but uh, apparently Anders Borg has been extremely successful by politically, thinking out of the box. And that, for me, is something very fascinating also at the LSE. We all want to think out of the box. Right? So that's why I'm so happy to be here today to introduce you, and um, I will now give you the floor.
1: Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for inviting me to the London School of of Economics. This is obviously one of the key European institutions when it comes to to bridging academic and and the policy debate. And uh, obviously the school and its many researchers have done um, very, very important contributions to our overall conversation of where we're heading with our our societies. The title of uh, my speech today will be Perspectives on the European Crisis from a Small Open Economy. I will try to focus on the underlying long-term problems and factors that have been causing this crisis and the factors that we have to take into account when we are trying to find a solution. I will argue that the Euro crisis basically uh, is about structural issues. Uh, the good years hid the fact that many of our European economies have lost competitiveness and has not been able to adjust to a globalised economy to uh, uh, enough extent. I would therefore argue that the main solution for the the crisis in the euro area and and Europe must deal with long-term structural issues. You could not Mm -hmm. use political structures to avoid doing necessary economic reforms to become more competitive and to be better in the uh, world market. I would also argue, given the debate here in the UK, that from a Swedish perspective, it is crucial to keep the UK at the core of European cooperation, As Swedes, we are worried about where the British debate is sliding. Uh, We see it as important that a pro-growth, pro-openness, pro-free trade country like the UK stays a part of the European Union. And therefore, for us, it is worrying that there's now a tendency where where, uh, the European project becomes less and less popular here in the UK. I will also argue that there are some key lessons from the Swedish experience of the last few years We have been able to weather the crisis in better shape than many other countries. And one of the reasons for that is that we were starting off with a much more credible and stronger public finances. We have been able uh, to put forward expansionary programs, uh, but also keep our credibility in the markets. We have relied heavily on structural measures to improve the functioning of the, the labor market, to continue to reform our welfare state. And we've been able to sustain uh, an expansionary fiscal policy over the whole of the crisis. And where we're now seeing weakness in the world economy, this year Sweden has done a stimulus program of almost a percentage point of GDP. And we are ready to continue that kind of policies in 2014 if we are seeing a weaker growth also then. So that is the main main message from, from my speech today. When we are looking at the European crisis, I think we should be aware that this is the fifth year of crisis. This is a process that has been ongoing since the Lehman Brothers crisis. And uh, I I think we could uh, look forward to a meager year, a bleak growth for 2013. But let's remember, we are in a better spot than we were in 2008. Uh, Then we had the the Lehman crash. The credit market stopped functioning. Um, We saw world trade plummeting. And all in all, there was a very, very hard hit to, to global demand. This turned into a banking crisis where actually um, in, in, and we were seeing uh, problems um, going over to a sovereign debt crisis. So some important steps have been taken to deal with this situation. There has been important reforms in how the financial market is functioning. We have been building a new financial infrastructure in, in Europe to try to create a, a more stable and more uh, long-term sustainable uh, financial system. And the key of that is obviously strengthening the banks and, and the increasing capital requirement, tightening supervision, and, and also uh, making banks more aware of the risks that they, they are creating. Over the last few months, when we're talking about stance of fiscal policy, there has been a strong debate between whether we must choose between austerity and growth. I will take a pragmatic approach to this issue. There are two key issues that I think one must consider. That is, first and foremost, that we must secure credibility of economic policy. There will be no efficient stabilization policy if we don't, maintain the market credibility. If households and firms start to believe that long-term sustainability is not upheld, well, investment and consumption will not increase. Secondly, we must, when we are doing our stabilization policy, keep our eyes on the long-term fundamental issues. We must use our stabilization policy to, at the same time, address long-term growth issues. So let me start with the first point, credibility. Uh, Public finances, the efficiency of economic policy, is clearly depending on credibility. We are in one world if the households and the firm believe that we actually see long-term sustainable public finances. Then monetary policy, exchange rate, and fiscal policy can work in the same direction. If we lose credibility, particularly for a small open economy, we will be in a very vulnerable spot. I was experienced this in Sweden. When we saw the, the IT bubble crash in some years ago, the Riksbank actually had to increase uh, repo rates while we were actually seeing a slowdown of the economy because the currency depreciated so much that there was an inflation risk coming. In this crisis, Sweden have been able to use all the tools in the toolbox when it comes to, to, to economic policy. But that was because we started with a strong credibility and with strong public finances. So countries that are in a difficult situation must uh, deal with, with the, the credibility issue. If we, for example, is looking at the UK, I think the government has struck the right balance between a um, gradual improvement of public finances and trying to keep propping up the, the, the general demand. If deficit is going from around 11.5% to 7%, that is uh, showing a path where you're going back to stable public finances, but also taking into account that if the UK would have been running a deficit of 8 9 and 10% for the years to come, there would be a market distrust of, of the government and of the bond market, and also from the households and the firms when they are taking decisions on investments and, and consumption. So this is a balanced approach to get back to, to uh, 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 credible public finances. For some of the countries... Where, well, there is no market credibility, like Greece or Spain and even some other example, like Portugal, well, they have no options. They need to continue to deliver on, on the commitments that they've made, because if they are cutting back on their commitments, it is quite clear that they will lose market credibility, and that would only prolong the crisis and make the turmoil even worse. At the same time, countries with a stronger public finances can maintain an expansionary fiscal policy. For a country like Sweden, South Korea, Switzerland, or even Germany and Finland, it is very reasonable that a weaker global demand is met by somewhat more expansionary fiscal policy. So there is no black and white between austerity and growth. For a country that has credibility, it is quite clear that fiscal policy should be used ...for stimulating the economy in a situation where we see slower economic demand. At the same time, it is clear that countries without credibility must stick to the game plan... ...and continue to deliver, over-deliver, when it comes to their commitment and and to regaining market uh, market, uh, uh, confidence. (laughs) When it comes to the structural problems, one can do many analyses of why Europe is in this very problematic um, position... To my mind, this has much more to do with fundamental growth than with short-term stabilization policy. The global economy is going through a period of great changes. We have seen the Asians and also particularly the Chinese entering the world market with very, very strong manufacturing sector and and today becoming a global economic uh, uh, dominant player when it comes to to manufacturing production. This will obviously continue the, the decades to come. We have Africa right next to to Europe, which will be 1.5 billion people in the next couple of decades. And that will bring a new opportunity for increased competition, more world trade, better technological development. But it will be a challenge for Europe. And we should not underestimate how sectors, uh, regions, and countries will be put under pressure. We cannot expect the world economy to leave us at the top of the value chain if we are not reinventing ourselves and continue to create uh, world-class pro- products. And this is the problems that was hidden by the boom years. But if we look at the last 10 years, the eurozone has grown with 1.2%. The, Euro, uh, the, Euro, the EU as a whole has only grown slightly more. Sweden at 25 has been doing pretty well in comparison, but the European Union cannot be satisfied with a growth rate of close to a percentage point. That is not how a modern and dynamic society should develop. And if we look at the reason and the causes of the problem, it is quite clear that Spain, Italy, Portugal and Greece have not been able to sustain a sufficiently high productivity growth. Of the last 10 years, if we are looking at relative unit labor cost, they have lost some 20 to 30 percent in cost pressure in comparison to Germany. And the only solution for this must be fundamental self-reflection and willingness to reform and to create uh, uh, policies that are dealing with the the core of the the issue, and that is an over-regulated labor market, lack of competition in the domestic sector, and a lack of willingness to Adapt and to a changing world. And that has to be done. We know that Spain have done some progress. They have taken back some half of the competitive loss that they've made. If they could continue with the same pace, they would be uh, uh, in a situation that is viable in a couple of, of, of years or so. But we have also seen that Italy, for example, are still in a situation that is very, very close to where they were when, um, at, at, at the peak of, of the cost problem. And this has to be dealt with. You cannot uh, 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 take an exchange and say that we will build a fiscal union where transfer payments from the northern part of Europe will compensate for lack of productivity. If you're not viable in the international markets, if you don't produce products that people are willing to pay for, when your export sector is continuously sliding behind, well, that is not a long-term solution. And the only solution that, that can deal with this is to focus on productivity reforms, and I think we know quite well from economic um, research and from the experience of other countries what is necessary. We need to see pro-growth institutions, we need to see increased competition where barriers to entry, costs of operation, ability to adjust is increased, particularly in the domestic service sector the telecommunication, the banking industry, the transportation, uh, the insurances. You cannot have a cost structure where the domestic sector is uncompetitive and be competitive in your export sector. So this is processes that are difficult, but they have to be started and they have to be followed through. And it's also quite clear that we need to see pension and social security reforms. The welfare states of Europe has to become much more long-term sustainable, both in terms of public finances, but also in terms of poverty trap and inactivity traps. We need to have systems that is transferring people back to the labor market rather than locking them out. There is something, um, a dilemma in this, because if we are going to be viable in the international markets, we cannot only cut back expenditures, we also need to spend more. More on childcare, more on education, more on research and development. So it's not the question whether we should only scale back our, our public expenditures. We need to refocus our public expenditures from transfer payments, from pension systems, from social security, go and, and transferring it to, to growth expenditures in terms of education and infrastructure. And this is obviously difficult. There are no easy choices in this. But we cannot deal with the long-term reasons for this crisis without fundamentally changing our social models and moving towards higher productivity growth. So, in my mind, Europe is at a crossroad. The European integration has been a major achievement. What we've seen with the enlargement, with the single market, is a clear convergence where growth rates have been higher, Uh, where cohesion has increased and where poverty in Europe has been reduced over the last few decades. But I'm worried now that we will see an increased cooperation between the euro-area countries, building a banking union, a fiscal union, that is also creating a division inside of Europe. I don't think that the core of the solution for Europe is building new political structures. The core of the solution is restoring long-term competitiveness. And I think we to some extent risk of distracting our energy because politicians only have so much political energy to spend if we are focusing too much on the political structures and too little on structural reforms. So to my mind, the EU27, the European Union, is the key institution. It is the broader European market that provides ourselves with a stronger position in the world economy and a divided Europe where some of the countries are moving forward with the political structures, rather than us keeping the whole uh, union cooperating, is a problematic development. In this respect, let me say a few words from a Swedish perspective on, on the debate in the UK. UK, for us, is at the heart of Europe. UK is a country that believes in free trade, a dynamic place for Europe in the world economy, and that is policies that we, from a Swedish perspective, normally support. So we would not like to see the UK sliding away from the European Union. Referendums are difficult animals to live with. There could be a mishappening the last week of a referendum campaign where by an accident the UK would be leaving the European Union. And that would be very, very problematic. We need the UK at the table taking part of this. And the key asset that the UK is providing for Sweden and for Europe is the fact that London is our leading financial center. But the financial sector can never be separated from the political structures. I cannot see how it can be sustainable that London is the financial center of Europe and at the same time stepping out of the political discussion. This is is not correct to compare Norway or Switzerland to the UK. This is not a country with great natural assets in terms of oil and natural gas. It is the financial center of Europe, and that could never be separated from the political scene. So for my mind, it would be a great mistake if the debate in the UK um, is leaning in a, in a way that is at the end, meaning that there is a clear risk that the UK would be, be at the end outside of, of the Union. And I think there must be a realistic discussion in this country on, on these issues. When I talk to Swedish international companies, this is an issue. They are worried about what is happening in the UK. This was a non-issue three months or six months ago. And for Europe, for Sweden, for UK, it is a key interest to keep the British perspective in the European Union. And I would be very uh, worried if the sliding of the British debate continues uh, moving away from from Europe. And I would like to, to, to sound a warning in that respect. Let me give you a few um, lessons also from the Swedish experience of the last few years. Sweden is a small, open, and vulnerable economy. We are depending on our big manufacturing companies. We are heavily dependent on commodities like paper and pulp, iron, ore, and we are a country with a big financial sector. So when the crisis hit Sweden, particularly the fact that Latvia, Iceland uh, were affected immediately, this uh, cut back our growth, the Swedish uh, GDP fell some 6% in the beginning of the crisis. So we were, together with Germany and some other countries, one of the hardest hits. But it's also quite clear when we are looking back at this experience that we have done relatively better than most of the other European member states. Our GDP is today back at a higher level than it was in 2008. Our employment level is actually higher than it was pre the crisis. And the increase of unemployment has only been half of the average of the European Union. So why have we been able to manage? Well, the first and maybe the most obvious reason is that we went into the crisis with strong public finances. We had reduced our debt level from some 70-80% in the early 90s down to 45% when I came in as a minister. Today it is at 40%, so we've actually been able to reduce the debt also during the crisis. When you're starting out with this 3% surplus, you don 't have to face the difficult choices of whether you should stimulate the economy or not. For us, it was clear cut that we could put forward stimulus measures in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine two thousand and ten we didn 't have to do cutbacks in eleven or twelve and now, in thirteen, when we are seeing weaker growth, we can continue to invest in infrastructure, research and development, and also cutting corporate taxes so if we're going to learn something from this crisis, it's actually that you must put your house in order during the good years. It is during the good years that you could create the buffers that gives you flexibility and room to maneuver in the bad years. The second reason that Sweden have done better is that we actually were a little bit skeptical of this uh, uh, tendency of economists to say that Uh, Stabilisation policy must be uh, targeted and temporary and be redrawn after the crisis. We have put a heavy emphasis on the long-term structural issues. We have cut back taxes, particularly for low and medium income earners. We have increased flexibility of our labour market. We have reformed our benefit systems. We continue to do that during the crisis. We have cut back corporate taxation, and we have improved our business climate by by taking away the wealth tax, and and there is no inheritance tax in in Sweden. So the bulk of the measures that we did during the crisis were measures that in the long term increased our ability to produce, in the long term increased uh, the functioning of our our employment and and improving our, our labor market. So we were heavily oriented towards long-term sustainable uh, measures that would increase uh, potential growth. And this was actually, when we came out of the crisis in the 90s, we did a lot of other structural reforms, but we were lagging behind when it came to the labor market. The private employment growth of the last 10 to 15 years was very meager. Uh, The um, equilibrium rate of unemployment stayed on quite high levels, and the degree of social exclusion remained very high. Before we came into office, a quarter of the Swedish workforce uh, in in working ages were actually dependent on on different social uh, welfare systems. So what we've tried to do with tax cuts, uh, reforms of benefit systems, reducing our over-reliance on active labour market policies, and trying to do it less costly to hire uh, people and to improve the business climate, that is issues that is uh, using the need for stimulus to to deal with our long-term uh, growth issues and that I think is a main reason why we've been able to sustain the crisis <laughs> relatively well the third reason we started from a good position we have put heavy emphasis on long term sustainable issues, the third reason is that we were cautious we did not over expand ourselves in 2009 and 10. we did not go into large super high deficits so when we're now seeing that the crisis is longer and more difficult than we were expecting, we can come back again we can do further measures, and the households can be sure that we don't need to do cutbacks. It will not be that we, in 2014 or 15, will have to see a weaker global development and increase in taxes or cutting back welfare systems. But being cautious, keeping safety margins, means that you can also continue to do stimulus measures if the crisis is deeper and longer. And that is something that, that I think has benefited us very, very well. So we would expansion, not only in 2008, 9, and 10. we are also ready to provide demand support in 13 and 14 if that proves to be necessary. Let me give you my overall conclusions um, to sum up. The essence of the European crisis is about growth. A decade of a percentage point growth is the core of the problem. That has to be solved with structural reforms, particularly increased productivity in the domestic service sectors in the Mediterranean countries. You could never hide a fundamental issue with a transfer system, and you should uh, direct the energy to structural reforms rather than creating political structures that might divide Europe. The European Union, I think, is the key project. When it comes to the UK debate, let me again underline that for Sweden, it is a crucial interest to keep the UK at the heart of the European cooperation. It is important for Sweden, for Europe, and obviously also for jobs and investments in, in the UK. And when it comes to the conclusions from our own experience, well, let me underline that the only way that you can be an efficient Keynesian is to start out with strong public finances. To be a surplus Keynesian and use long-term structural measures to improve the functioning of your economy, that is the right way to do stabilization policy, rather than temporary and short-term measures to, to, to stimulate demand. So, once again, I think the core for Europe is to try to modernize, to try to develop our welfare model, to keep our social market economy with social cohesion, but also modernizing it to become competitive also in a changing world economy. Thank you very much..
0: Thank you very much for this uh, brilliant synthesis of uh, um, what the position is of Sweden and what we can learn from. Um, the Swedish experience. I think it will certainly lead to lots of questions and discussions. Before I leave the floor, I want to announce that those of you who would like to tweet and tell the rest of the world what is going on here, the hashtag is lsborg. Now I open the floor for questions. Yes, shall we start there? There is a microphone coming.
1: <laughs> With the bond yields in Europe coming down, do you detect any complacency in Southern Europe? And if so, do you have any other leverage, uh, speaking of Northern Europe, in order to keep the pressure on Southern Europe to do the reforms you're talking about? Well, I don't think we should be overly optimistic for the outlook for 2013. Uh, I would think it would be dangerous to, to call the crisis over. Uh, it it is quite clear that we have political uncertainty in the U.S. that might come back to the markets. It is also quite clear that, I mean, the Greek government has done tremendous effort to keep the programs going and not derailing it in a a short-term perspective. But we might come back to a situation where uncertainties about some of the member states will will be back in the forefront of the market. So and when I speak to our own multinationals, uh, they are not telling me that they are hearing clear signals of a strong recovery. It might be that we're moving sideways rather than downwards, but uh, I cannot see that this is a strong recovery where we're already out of the woods. And uh, let's remember, August and September has not been good months, uh, neither in 11 or 12, so let's be hopeful that it it, it might be calm at 13, but uh, we're not out of the woods. And fundamentally, I I think it's quite problematic um, if we are putting all the political energy into these fiscal structures rather than dealing with the crisis. To my mind, the ECB has a crucial role to play here, and I'm overly supportive of a flexible monetary policy from their side because I cannot see any inflation threat in Europe as it is. Price stability is extremely well anchored in inflation expectations, so they have room to manoeuvre. There is no strong increase in monetary aggregates or inflation expectations. And also, I think we probably need to see further measures to strengthen the banking system in some of the the, the southern European countries, and that, to me, is the core issues besides the the structural uh, uh, improvements of policy.
0: Thank you. There was a question there, this lady. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Hi. Um, My question is about Sweden, actually. Uh, This week, the McKinsey Global Institute published a report about Sweden's economy. And indeed, they uh, commended Sweden for um, coming such a long way since the crisis and being being so stable. Uh, But they did mention some challenges that are facing Sweden's economy and the political system. And I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think Sweden's uh, role is going to be in the economy in the future? Where is it going and what needs to happen so that it stays stable and a leading force like it is now?
1: Well, I mean, we are not complacent and we are not believing that we are done with uh, changes. We believe that the core feature of the Swedish model has been that we've been able to adapt and change continuously over the last two or three decades. So when we did our budget for this year, we gave priority to infrastructure, research and development, and also cutting corporate taxes. Because what we are seeing is not a temporary crisis in the world economy, it's also a structural change, where competition will be tougher for the next couple of decades. And as I mentioned, the the Asian, but also in the future, the African dimension of of this issue. So we need to to reinvent ourselves. Nobody will buy Swedish products if they are not at the cutting edge when it comes to technological development. So it's also quite clear for us that we have um, very high youth unemployment. Sweden is today a multicultural society with a large uh, share of the population coming from uh, particularly Iraq, Iran, but also Africa's horn and and, um, other non-European countries. And We need to become better in integrating people into our markets. There's been too many thresholds, uh, too many legal restrictions, taxes, and benefit systems that has prevented people to come into the labour market. So a key challenge for us is now to sit down with the labour unions and the employers to find a new way of introducing uh, people to the Swedish labour market, to open up and modernise our model. We want to keep a collective bargaining system with strong unions. That's a part of our cohesive social model. But it has to be adapted uh, uh, so that it becomes uh, more open. And clearly, we have something to learn from Germany and, and the Netherlands and Austria when it comes to apprentice system, introductory jobs, and, and so forth. So, we're not trying to create low wage jobs, but we're trying to open up the Swedish labor market together with the labor unions and, and the employers' organization.
0: Okay, thank you. Yes,
3: Mr. Bori, the prevailing lesson from the current European crisis as seen within the Eurozone is that more controls are needed so that this situation does not happen again. That means that more powers have to be transferred from the member states of the Eurozone countries to the European institutions... And in this respect, how you can see the role of the United Kingdom within Europe? The trend within the United Kingdom is exactly the opposite. They are not going to allow more powers to be transferred from the national government to the European Union. Could you, could you tell, tell something about that, please? Well, I mean...
1: We need to reflect over two, collectively reflect over two difficult social choices. One is how to create a much more stable and long-term sustainable fiscal framework. But it, it must be a more conservative, more stringent and tougher fiscal framework so that countries are not coming back to an increasing debt in the next crisis. The second issue is, as I mentioned, very difficult structural reforms. and They must be maintained and continuous and reinforced for maybe five to ten years. Both of these are difficult issues. I know that because we've done them in Sweden, and I've been working as an economist and a politician during the time period. It has been difficult. I cannot see how any of these choices becomes easier to make if you're going to build even more structures where these um, uh, uh, powers are pushed on the countries from uh, Brussels or from, from the Commission. These are difficult choices that the Spaniards, the Italians, and the Greeks must do they don 't become simpler because somebody else is, is shouting them uh, at them uh, uh, to make them. So uh, I must say, I would like to keep the European Union working. I can understand that the eurozone needs better governance structures. I can accept that they are moving forward. but to my mind it 's very, very important to keep this an opening union that works for all twenty seven countries so I'm very skeptical of a fiscal union. I don't believe in a Euro budget. I don't believe in Euro bonds. I don't believe in a a, a finance minister of the Eurozone. And I definitely don't believe that uh, the project will be more popular because we are forcing people to bail out uh, banks in other countries. And to be clear, if we're creating a fiscal structure for Europe, but not solving the productivity issue of Italy and Spain, we will be back in a mess in five or 10 years. So we cannot postpone necessary changes by building a transfer union that will not be legitimate among the voters. So I'm I'm very skeptical of where some parts of the Eurozone is now arguing that they should be heading for the years to come.
3: Well, this is a plea actually for more controls and the paths which you have described are are rather contradictory.
0: But let us see what happens. Thank you very much. Mm. Uh, can, can I um, abuse of my uh, role of my uh, position of chairman to follow up on, on this issue? I understand your um, desire to, to maintain a fully functioning European Union, but with the other fact that is that the Eurozone, if it uh, wants to survive, will have to develop into a stronger political union, whether one likes it or not, outside the Eurozone. Um, And it seems to me that this will create a challenge for Sweden. Um, It will have to make a choice at some point. Um, Of course, it is true that productivity issues are key, but that's not the only thing. I mean, the, the Eurozone will develop. Into a political union, or it will disappear. Right? So that—that's what I would like to—that's <coughs> what I would like to put forward. <laughs> um, but you, obviously, you may disagree with this. Uh, but if—if if you follow me. Uh, then the challenge will be on Sweden. Uh, What what choices will will you want to make then? Will you say, we will continue to stay outside the Eurozone using a loophole in the treaty, as uh, you certainly know, uh, (coughs) or will you at some point say, well, uh, let's join them?
1: Well, I mean, democracies are a messy process. Um, Democratic decision-making is complex, In Sweden, a little bit above 80% of the population are against switching from the krona to to the euro. Um, And it's quite clear that uh, the Swedish public has not been that impressed by by how the eurozone has has actually worked. (laughs) Uh, And and, and let me say, I I actually disagree. Uh, I don't think that the core of the issue is um, creating a new political structure uh, in the euro area. To me, the first measure is ECB using the credibility that they have. Providing normal central banking service uh, to the euro to, to area. I strongly agree with those who think that there is a need for a stronger fiscal framework. Mm-hmm. Not control, but self control. I think we should go back to the Greek word autonomous, which means that you're setting rules but you're setting them for yourselves, because those are the only ones that are legitimate in a democracy. The only way that you convince parliaments and local governments that they cannot spend money is that they themselves realize that they actually must be conservative and prudent when it comes to fiscal policy. It will not help that the Commission is, is, is writing this in, in many of its reviews. It will only work if the population in these countries draw, draw the right conclusion and already support uh, a good policy. But for me, I'm a pro-European. I believe that Sweden's place is in the European Union, and I, I would not consider leaving under any circumstances that <laughs> I could foresee. And For us, what we were trying to do is obviously convince the Germans, the French, Italians and the Spaniards, that it's in their interest to keep the whole of the European Union going. Will this be easy? No. Will it take complex compromises? Yes. And that's how politics works. And and I strongly believe that that is the best method of of moving forward. But to me, the main issue is not the political structure. It is the productivity. I cannot foresee how you can have a a long-term functioning uh, Eurozone without uh, much better productivity growth. And that has to do deal with with the fundamental structural reforms that has to come first.
0: Okay, thank you. Shall I? Yeah. You've
1: mentioned a few times banking reforms. Um, what, what would you say are the the main components of such banking reform? Well, obviously you can focus on Sweden, but if you had general thoughts, obviously those would be welcome as well. Well, I'm I'm very supportive of the process that we have seen from the financial stability board and also from, from the Basel committee. I think we need to reform banking major league in, in, in the years to come particularly from a Swedish perspective our banking system is, is as a share of GDP one of the largest in, in Europe because we are also providing banking services to, to the Baltic countries our households are highly indebted our banking system is clearly dependent on whole short-term wholesale whole uh, FX financing. This makes us very vulnerable. If, if the credit market dries up and the interbank market stops to function, we are in a very difficult spot. So I think the process are heading, is heading in the right direction. More capital, a gradual increase of capital requirements, uh, more use of, of macroprudential buffers, using risk weights, when it comes to risky uh, activities such as mortgage bonds, but also trading activity, Uh, tougher supervision, absolutely necessary, more intrusive, more detailed. I strongly believe in that. And I also think that a part of the crisis resolution uh, is a part of the solution. The bankers must understand that if they run out of capital, they will be recapitalized and taken over. That's the only way to safeguard the taxpayer's money and it's the only way to make clear to the, to the bankers that they cannot uh, keep the profits and socialize the losses that we've seen over the last few years. So I'm generally supportive of, of uh, uh, the, the steps taken in the European Union. And my problem with the banking union is not the fact that there's, there should be a, a common banking system. My problem is that I would like to see all countries being able to participate on equal terms. Because... If you're in a real banking crisis, and I've been there twice, uh, you will notice that this will happen late at a Sunday night, when you will have to spend humongous amount of the taxpayer's pi- money over a couple of hours, and then decision-making uh, have a role to play. If it, all the decisions at the end of the day will be taken by only the euro countries, well, I'm sorry to say, I would not jeopardize my own public finances uh, uh, in such a situation. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but when it comes to the banking union, Sweden will not join until all of the member states can be treated equally and fairly, and that is not the case today. uh, Uh, I'm skeptical. Uh, I was in the the bond and currency trading business when long-term capital uh, exploded. As I understand, that was not a retail bank but it has to be dealt with anyway. Uh, you know, we saw this in Sweden where some of our banks were a combination of, of retail and commercial banks, but we have to deal with them anyway. Uh, and The same goes for Lehman Brothers. They were not a huge retail banking operation. Uh, so one of the points that is brought out in the Likkonen report, I think, is that all bank types can create problems. And in a crisis, where liquidity is short, where um, everybody is scared, you cannot le- leave a major financial institution to fail. And therefore, I think it's a little bit um, – I wouldn't say that you can't can solve the problem. I, I would rather go for the part of the Likkonen solution, which is increasing capital requirement for more risky activity rather than building new legal entities. Okay. May I move up to a higher level of questions?
0: Yep.
2: <laughs> Going back to Sweden,
0: um, since 2007, you have dramatically cut the defense budget to the extent that the supreme commander said – Uh, about two weeks ago, that Sweden could only defend against a limited attack one part out of the country for up to one week in 2019. So my question is thus very simple. How long will the defense budget be allowed to function as a regulator for Swedish finances? Thank you.
1: Well, um, I'm sorry to say that I disagree, and uh, the data is on my side. Uh, Sweden spends Uh, 1.2 or 1.1% of GDP on on defence, which is very similar to Denmark, Norway, Finland, and most of the other members of of the European Union. To my mind and memory, uh, there are only the UK and France and uh, maybe some other country like Greece and Turkey among the NATO states that are actually spending 2% of GDP. So we are well in line with with the rest of of the EU members. And, And to be quite clear... What we are talking about is the scenario where we would see a singular attack on Sweden from presumably Russia. <laughs> um, yes, and it will be difficult for 10 million Swedes to stand up against 140 million Russians. But <laughs> to be quite frank, this has always been the case. Sweden is, is, is situated west of Russia and north of Germany. And <laughs> Okay. Uh, up there, then. But I'm a strong supporter of a strong Swedish defense.
2: <laughs> Great. Thank you, Minister. Uh, Van Rompuy's recent report included the proposal uh, for an increase in the EU's uh, fiscal capacity at the supranational level and perhaps even the possibility of debt issuance capabilities. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, and is it feasible in the next years? Thank you.
1: Well, it's most definitely discussed among, among the, the, the euro uh, countries. We've seen the report from the four presidents, uh, Van Rompuy, uh, Mario Draghi, and, 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 and Juncker and, and, and Barroso. Uh, I, I'm very skeptical against uh, euro bonds, uh, a common fiscal budget for, for, for eurozone. Uh, The idea that we would improve the situation by utilizing debt I think is going in the wrong direction. The moral hazard problem is very clear. Europe has been building up deficits and debts over the last 30, 40 years. Many of the countries have not been in surplus for for decades. And how we we would make anything better by by making it simpler to build up debt is to me a a puzzle. In an acute crisis, you need to be solidaric. We have paid up for, for Ireland, for Iceland. From, for, for, for Latvia. That, that's one thing. You have to help out your neighbors. That to me is, is very, very clear. But to move to a situation where we are basically trying to convince half of the European taxpayers to pay subsidies and transfer to others, I, I don't think that that is a, a political project that is, is going to be successful. So therefore, I think tight fiscal frameworks and structural reforms which increases productivity, is, is a much better path to follow than, than to build a, a fiscal union. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um,
0: apparently, the, the Greek, Greek unemployment is at 50% for the youth and 25% for the people. And I was wondering, is there like a theoretical level at which uh, the European Union would get like the government like giving money for, for people to dig holes and fill them up like in the, in the metaphor like used or is it something that's not considered?
1: Well, um, let me compare the case of Iceland and Latvia with, with Greece. Um, Iceland and Latvia with different exchange rate regimes, one being a, a, a currency board and the other being uh, a floating exchange rate. Uh, both of them have seen unemployment increase but in both cases it Employment is now increasing and unemployment is, is coming down. So I think the prolonged and not very um, consequent uh, implementation of the programs have created and deepened the problems in Greece. Uh, and they are basically going back to a fundamental lack of competitiveness of the Greek economy. If you have an export sector that is only equal to 20% of GDP, uh, you are very vulnerable in, in this kind of global environment. So having said that, I mean, I would obviously support the measures taken by, by the Eurozone countries where they have both from the private sector and from the public sector have, have reduced the, the Greek debt. And I would be very happy if the Greek government's effort uh, to keep this process going, uh, uh, if that's going to be successful. But to my mind, if you are so uncompetitive as the Greek economy is, and if the debt level is so high as it is, there will be remaining uncertainties that have to be dealt with. And and I can't really see that um, you could deal with this situation with short-term stimulus measures for a country like Greece. They need to deal with the uh, fundamental issues, and um, implementation has not been as forefront as I would have uh, liked to see. Could think that such a of pain the state the power well, of the state to act terms of the the sad problem is that part of the reason why they are in such a dire strait is the fact that they were slow when it comes to reform process, when it started. Both Iceland and Latvia took much more pain up front than the Greeks did. But that also meant that they came out of the crisis much faster because the market credibility came back and the households and the firms were starting to see an end to this. The Greeks came into this with a high deficit before the crisis with decent growth numbers, they were basically overspending in, in good days as in bad days and their competitiveness is too weak. And I'm very sad, I would be most supportive of any solution that we can uh, uh, just get the problems out of, of, of our sight. but they need fundamentally to do what they can to, to improve their situation and obviously they need support and programs and I think the Euro countries have, have tried to provide quite a lot of support for, for Greece.
0: Thank you. Let me return to firm ground. Um, would you please uh, formulate your question? I'm from the United States, and having done congressional work back at home, as well as doing work in the parliament here in the U.K., one of the biggest questions when it comes to uh, debt reform is how to build the political will that you and Sweden have done. Because in the U.S., it's very hard, it's very easy to say one thing, yet do another. So my question would be, how do you build that, that political will to accomplish what you've accomplished in Sweden? and What can we learn from it? And then my second part um, about Russia would be, why do you think that despite uh, Russia's reliance on basically oil f- for its growth, uh, do we see that its GDP has risen, to, I believe, over 4% uh,
2: after the crisis, and the EU hasn't? Thank
1: you. Okay. Well. It's it's very difficult to give advice on how to build political consensus. But the first thing I would argue for is that you need broad-based discussions in the U.S. between both of the two major parties. And and, and any sustainable uh, compromise must deal with both expenditures and taxes. There is an acute need for increased tax revenues. There are some taxes that are less dangerous to the economy than others, Uh, things that are unthinkable in the U.S. debate, such as carbon dioxide taxes, um, a, a federal VAT, um, property taxes. Uh, the taxes that tend to have the least harmful effect on, on growth, th- they could be used. Uh, but there is also a need to deal with the long-term um, social security issues. Uh, the U.S. is overspending on health care. It is um, having a social security system that is not long-term sustainable, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, to our experience, it's the social cohesion issues are very important to be able to build this uh, kind of consensus behind a, a, a firm uh, fiscal policy. Uh, you have to have the feeling that the society is in this together. And that's obviously very difficult in, in any society. But. Uh, a broad-based compromise in, in the U.S. Is, is the only viable solution, to my mind, to deal with this problem. And I'm very worried about the kind of political battles that we are seeing in, in these issues. And, and you cannot say that we're only going to solve this with taxes or only going to solve this with, 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 with uh, uh, expenditures. It has to be a combination and, um, well i 'm not an expert on the Russian economy, and um, um, let me say that it 's quite clear that they 've been able to grow uh, a large part of that has been um, due to uh, natural to, 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 to energy, but there has also been some uh, changes in, in their um, political structures and in their economic structure that has been pro growth. Uh, reforms uh, of the last five to ten years. And, and uh, they have a situation where their macroeconomic fundamentals is, is um, after the crisis in 98 has been moved towards a much more long-term sustainable. Uh, then obviously one could have more of a political discussion on, on how the Russian democracy is working and, and, and so forth. But in economic terms, I think they've moved in the right direction. Okay. Yes, please. <coughs>
3: Yes, hi. Thank you for your speech. Um, I have a question about... um, uh, You said at the end of last year, you said that you wrote down the growth prospect of 2013 from 2.7% to 1.1%. And do you think that Sweden might be optimistic when it comes to um, economic development? And if so, does this affect the credibility? Well, uh,
1: (laughs) uh, uh, we have... uh, uh, a forecast of a percentage point of growth last year and a percentage point of, of growth next year. Our own forecasts are very close to the National Institutes and, and to the Riksbank's assessment. Uh, uh, there are some uh, decimal points that, that might be different. But in the overall picture, we are seeing a bleak year, uh, slow recovery in 14. Uh, and to my mind, given that the Swedish Krona has appreciated, uh, partly due to safe haven issues, but also to the fact that given the high household indebtedness, monetary policy in Sweden will have to be very cautious moving forward. It is more likely that the Riksbank will be early on when it comes to to pulling back stimulus measures than than other central banks because we cannot allow household lending to to continue and and property prices to continue to increase. So, therefore, I I think it's logical that we are using our very high credibility uh, uh, and using fiscal policy, uh, uh, to give a little bit of energy to the economy, not only in 13 but also in 14, uh, and basically with our bond yields trading at the rates that they are, I, I don't see any credibility problem. And let's face it, uh, I'm done a stimulus package of a percentage point. Our deficits is below 1%. Uh, our debt level has gone down from 45 to uh, 40% during my period in office, and it will continue to decrease uh, in the years to come. But if we have a weaker demand in the world economy, and our debt level is stable or even decreasing. I think we should use that strong position to to push our energy into the, to the economy.
0: Okay. Yes, please.
2: Um, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Ripon. I've got two questions to you. Um, the first question um, from the ongoing debate and the problem with the EU uh, for the last couple of years. Um, what do you think? Is it a more a political crisis in the EU uh, than an economic crisis? And the second question to you that, because in your speech you really emphasise about um, uh, UK is a very important so that they don't really uh, come out of EU. And why do you think that a reintegration of UK and EU in the EU would be very um, essential to rebuild um, the trust in the EU and uh, which would be very prospective for every single EU member indeed? Thank you.
1: Well, um... I think this is an economic crisis. To some degree, it has to do with, with flaws in the construction of, of the euro area, but even more so with the fact that for the last two decades, uh, uh, some of the euro, euro area countries have not adapted to globalization. You cannot uh, keep an unproductive, overregulated uh, domestic sector like they have in, in Spain in, in, in Italy. They must deal with that. And that basically is an, is an economic Uh, uh, crisis. But I don't think we should be overly pessimistic either. I mean, if we go back to 97, 98, there was a lot of people arguing that Asia would never come out of its crisis. Uh, Actually, some of the same academics that are now criticizing the uh, the austerity policies were actually then saying that IMF had killed off growth in Asia for the next decade. And instead, we saw the South Koreans, the Thailands, and the Indonesians dealing with their problems, and then growing 7-8% a year, for the next decade. If I go back to our own experience, we were very hard hit in in early 90s, and we did some fundamental soul searching and changed our society, and kept growing for almost 3% on average for for the next two decades. So if Italy and Spain and Portugal is dealing with the problems and facing up to the challenges, well, we might be seeing quite some good productivity numbers and growth numbers coming out, because there are some low-hanging fruits when you start out with deregulations, I remember this from our own process in 94, 95, 96, we continuously underestimated the productivity gains. We continuously overestimated uh, inflation pressure and cost pressure because we were not able to see the improvements of, of the economy. And uh, therefore, our growth rates were very, very high during the, the later part of the 90s. So if they are dealing with the problems, I cannot see why, why not Spain or, or Italy should, should be able to deal with the, their problems. Well, for me, the UK must be a, a core partner for a country like Sweden. We believe in free trade, we believe in opening ourselves up to the world and, and the UK has always been a voice in Brussels uh, for that kind of a position. And particularly if we are taking the perspective of the financial sector, uh, if regulation, regulations for the financial sector will be set in Brussels for the years to come and if we don't have the UK at the table arguing for a modern approach to the financial sector, it is more likely that we will uh, drift off in the wrong direction from a, a Swedish perspective. And, uh, it cannot be that a major player are putting themselves at the sideline. UK is not Norway. It's not Switzerland. It cannot be sitting at the sideline and accepting that the other European countries are setting the rule book. So to my mind, it's very important to keep the UK as an active player in, in the European Union.
0: Okay, I've... Uh... Time for one more question.
2: Please. Yeah. Hello, uh, My question actually goes back to population size. Um, a few weeks ago, um, um, the IMF chief economist, Olivier Blanchard, came out with this working paper together with another co-author, which they are making major forecast errors regarding fiscal multipliers. And... and also austerity measures connected to that. Don't you think that this Swedish recipe would have major problems in being applied to countries such as uh, Spain or Italy, which are five or six times larger?
1: Well, um, I'm not certain. I think the the credibility channel is always there if a large part of your debt is actually traded on, on, on the markets. If you're like Japan, where you've locked in the debt, into your insurance companies, into your public sector, which is also true for the U.S., where they are not reliant on the international markets and uh, uh, to finance themselves to the same extent. Well, obviously, we can see in the bond market that uh, the, the, the bond rates in, in Japan and, and, and the U.S. Are, are very low, so they have more room, room to maneuver. But if you're entering the territory where the fundamental credibility is starting to be questioned, like it has been, for example, for, for, for Spain, well then it, it, the, 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 the problem with credibility is not only interest rates, it's also how the households and the firms are are, are, are willing to invest and, and to consume. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that consolidation is not painful. It is painful. There is a fiscal multiplier. I think we're clear about that, that if you're, if you're doing contractual measures, that will be bad for growth in the short term. So that's why I would underline that you also need to do other structural reforms that is actually pro-growth, like we did in Sweden with deregulation of telecommunication and retail sales and so forth. And you also need to have very expansionary monetary policy. The fund has been arguing very, very clearly that um, the experience from countries with Contractionary or, or fiscal consolidation processes going, well, they need expansionary monetary policy, and particularly they need measures uh, to, to get the, the, the banking system uh, functioning, and, and that I would agree with. So uh, uh, one has to face up to facts. Yes, there is a multiplier, but yes, if you're only postponing the consolidation, you will create more pain because you will have a, a huge um, a credibility problem.
0: Okay, I think uh, it, it's time to come to a close. I, I'm, I'm very sorry we, we could uh, certainly go on uh, much longer uh, in questioning you, in soliciting your views. Uh, what, what I uh, get from all this is uh, certainly um, that your capacity to, to be clear and forceful in presenting these views. Um, There are a number of key words that I've heard many times. Credibility, right, Uh, which is important. Uh, Long-term perspective, right, Uh, and and not too much short-term. Of course, the short-term is important, but the long-term is key in maintaining this credibility. And and, and structural reforms is is certainly something that uh, you feel um, has to get its... uh, um, necessary uh, importance. So I'm, I'm very um, grateful uh, to you for having given us uh, the opportunity to, to listen to you, to, to listen to uh, your view, and, and uh, I would like to ask the audience to share me in, in, in uh, really um, congratulating you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.